Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Kara Gonstead. She is a licensed psychotherapist, adjunct social work professor, and a business owner, among other things. Her first experience with a therapist was at age 16. So she has a history of kind of getting into what she's doing now, and I'm happy to have her here today. So Kara, thank you so much. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate being here. Yeah, so as you mentioned, I definitely did get a start in the therapy world at a younger age um, in my minor years, um, really going through some some ongoing family dynamics within my personal family um, and got thrown into the place of therapy, not from a desire that I wanted to be there, uh, but from this place of my parents thinking that that was something that I needed to be doing. So I went into this very, I'm going to say angry. I'm going to say that's probably a good word. I did not want to be there. I did not feel like I was this bad kid that I felt like when I went into this therapy environment. I didn't feel like I needed to be quote unquote fixed, which again was my stereotype of going into this place was I'm here because I need to be fixed. And it ended up being this beautiful space and place for me to just be me. And it made me really realize how powerful therapy could be if it was done well and there was a good connection and it really pushed me forward to know that that was what I wanted to do with my career. So what did you do after like originally going to therapy to get on the path of this is, this is where I want to be to now being there? Well, I can tell you way I'm going to say preteen years even I knew always that I wanted to do something to quote unquote help people. I just had no idea what that would mean. And I can remember, I think I actually still have this in an eighth grade project. I think I was 13 at the time. I remember we did these collages of what do you want to be when you grow up? And I can tell you, Sarah, I don't even think at the time I knew what this meant. I don't think I did. But I wrote on there, I wanted to be a psychologist. And again, like, where did this come from? I just knew I wanted to help people. I don't even think I knew what a psychologist was. And then we fast forward a few years where I was actually in a therapy setting and I got more exposure to what that was. And again, it just propelled like, this is what I want to do. It was so helpful to me. It was so impactful to me. And I knew that that was going to be my thing one day. I didn't know how to get there in terms of education and career track, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I ended up going right out of high school into college, um, getting a couple degrees, one in human development and one in psychology. And even while in college, up until the very end, I still didn't know how to get to this place of therapist, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I'm super thankful that I had one professor, my undergrad, who took time to sit down with me and asked me more about what I wanted to do and helped to give me options of tracks to get me there. 
So after that happened, I applied to grad school and decided I wanted to go the route of clinical social work to get to a place of practicing therapy. Uh, So after my undergrad, I started grad school a week later. And again, I was like full force ahead. I just wanted to get to a place where I could practice what I wanted to do in my career. I completed my graduate degree. I did all the things that you have to do to get to the credentials of LCSW to practice therapy. And and here I am. I mean, there's definitely more blips and roller coasters along the way, but I really went that route. So what was it like first practicing as a social worker? I can tell you that the job market when I graduated about a decade ago was much different than it is now. So truly, I was battling that cyclical place of everyone wants experience, but how do you get experience when you haven't had a real quote unquote professional job yet? So I took whatever came to me when I first graduated that was open. And ironically, I had no intention of going down this path. Didn't even know truly emotionally if I could do this job. But what I took out of grad school was a medical social worker position in a hospice um, facility. And again, I'm like, oh goodness, death and dying. This was not a place that I was comfortable with. I didn't have really any hardly experience in, and I just went for it because I had to take a job somewhere. And I'm not a quitter, but I truly went in my first day thinking, I may quit this job my first week because I don't know if I can do this. And I honestly ended up loving it. And again, I really think this is just because I do just like to help people. It's kind of in my nature, I think. And so I did that for four or five years. Again, I loved it. But I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do. I knew where my heart was in my career. So when that really got to a place of me needing to refocus to get to where I wanted to go, I passed my final clinical board. I started working part-time at a local women-owned, woman-owned clinic in the area. And again, with the ups and downs of what things are, I actually approached um, the lady who owned the place and said, hey, I actually have some ideas about this place and I want to know if you're open to possibly partnering with me so we can do this together. And it was a super respectful conversation, but she just did not have interest in that, which was okay. And I let her know that I really felt I wanted to pursue my own practice then. So shortly after that, she actually ended up um, closing her practice. So everything worked out really well, honestly, for both of us. And I opened my own business in 2018 called Genuine Way Family Therapy, started off as myself and quickly grew the practice, adding on a couple more clinicians and moved locations since to a bigger place. And here I am practicing. So what was it like doing your first like own practice? Were you able to kind of like take clients from the previous practice that was closing or were you kind of starting totally fresh? You know, there were, I want to honestly say I think actually all of my clients who I had been working with at the previous location, 
um, you know, I was very upfront with them that they could certainly stay with the clinic if they wanted to. But as with therapy and as with my own therapy experiences, you really get quote unquote attached to your therapist, right? You spilled everything to them. You hopefully feel really connected if you have a good fit and you want to follow that person. So that's really exactly what happened. Uh, My clients from the previous location did come over to my new practice. And then a lot of people, some people even found me like immediately when my website got up before I even opened for the first day, which was really surprising to me, especially as a brand new business owner. And things just trickled in kind of quickly from from there forward. And so what has it been like running a business and bringing additional people in? Business owning is an adventure. I will say that strongly. It is an adventure. I have zero business background, as honestly, a lot of entrepreneurs do. I have that same story as many do, where I never, ever, ever thought I would own my own business. And so it's constantly been a journey of learning and trying and failing and picking back up and trying a new method and all the things that go along with everything. And... I think that that was just another step of things was, okay, now I have an employee and what does that actually mean? And what are the rules around that? And how do I pay taxes for wages and everything along with playing this role of what I always wanted to be if I got to this place, which was leader versus boss. I just feel very strongly about that, that I want people who are working with me and in this place to really feel like a team and feel like equals while still having, of course, respect for the role that I have as well. So it's just been a learning experience, ongoing and constant, and every day is different. And so what sort of practice do you have and what kind of licenses do the people who work with you have? Yeah. So Within the practice, we do see an array of people. Uh, We have one therapist in particular who really enjoys working with children. And so we kind of give her all what we call the littles, right? She gives everyone typically like four to 10. Um, That's really her love area. So we let her hold on to that and cling to that because we know that she's the best person for that. We have another clinician here who really focuses on moms and their mental health and the mental illnesses that come sometimes with pregnancy, loss, postpartum. And then I really love working with tweens, teens, young adults on transition points in their lives, Um, whether that be parents are going through divorce or we're transitioning to middle school, high school, college. Uh, I do a lot of self-worth and communication work and boundaries work and identity work. And that just truly is my love. So within the course of the three of us, there is a lot of, you know, widespread places that we work with in terms of mental illness and just proactive health care as well. That's super important to us. And what was it like transitioning from working with hospice to your desire to work with the younger adults, the teenagers? Yeah. So that 
Again, when I really think back, that is such an interesting question because again, like I never, ever, ever thought I would be doing any hospice work, never. Um, And so me, for me, really, that was a time where I really just embraced what that was. I, again, I ended up loving it. And so I kind of just took day by day until I knew I was going to be at the place where I was ready for that transition over to truly fulfilling what I wanted to do. Um, within that though, you're right. There's a huge change stereotypically and hopefully, right. If we have this life as we hope to intend and we make it to our older years, going from working with elderly populations to a lot younger populations. Um, and honestly, I think I just really kind of kept those things separate, right? This was totally different work I was doing when it was medical and end of life care versus what I wanted to be going into. So I think those four to five years of hospice was just a time where I could truly focus on that until I was ready for that changeover. And so then what is the eventual goal for you and your practice? Like, are you hoping to continue to grow and reach more people? You know, this is a great question. I can't tell you how many people ask me this. And my answer is almost always the same of, I truly don't know. And I'm okay with not knowing that. I think there have been times in the past within the course of business owning where, you know, I get so concrete in what I think I want, at least, for a goal of whatever sorts, whether it be people or income or schedule, whatever that might be. And I find myself oftentimes, because I'm kind of tough on myself, getting disappointed if I don't reach that thing. And so I, what I've learned to do for me is just continue on this path of focusing on my core values, focusing on truly why I went into this work in the first place and dealing with the ups and downs of what are family transitions as well. Cause I have a young child and you know, when it comes to him being sick or school days versus not, and balancing all of our schedules with my husband, I've kind of stopped putting such expectations on what I think should happen. And I'm just kind of rolling with it. And it works so much better for me. Now, you mentioned, of course, that you started therapy at a younger age. Did you continue therapy throughout, you know, college and working towards your own degree? Or has was that kind of a shorter lived experience? So my younger time in therapy when I was a teen, that was shorter lived. And it really, truly focused on me and normalizing teen development at that time and just getting through. And that was, again, a wonderful experience for me. I, there was another time in my life um, when I was in college, when I was 18, I was a freshman at the time. I actually lost my best friend. Um, She died in a car accident. And I can tell you looking back that that was a time that I should have chosen to pursue therapy again because I really could have used it. Um, I internalized a lot and I just continued to push really hard in my schoolwork and not take time to process any of that. So that's a time I wish I would have chosen to do therapy again. Um, but I did get back into therapy after the birth of, eh, not immediately after the birth, 
but after the birth of my child due to some traumatic stuff during birth. And that was a really helpful experience to me as well. So I have not been consistently doing maintenance therapy, but I can tell you, I clearly believe in therapy and I know the benefits it's had for me. And so I'm very much open and will continue to use that when definitely when needed. And so obviously everyone's journey is a little bit different. So what do you kind of in general recommend people do with their own personal therapy journey? I think everyone is so different and that's so cliche and vague. And I understand that coming out of my mouth. However, what I will say is I love when we can lean more into just the proactive And a lot of times, especially now, I think it is so, for so many reasons, and I won't get into a ton of those, I think it's extremely hard, extremely hard to be a kid growing up nowadays. Very, very tough. And so I always come back when parents question me, like, should my kid do therapy? Do they need it? Are the symptoms severe enough to warrant an eval? What do I do? And I always say to them, I don't think there's any harm in having a checkup. And it would be the same advice I would give to somebody if they had any question or concern about their physical body and going to the doctor. Like, well, let's just check it out. Or, you know what? Maybe we maybe we do need to do something about something that's going on. Or maybe there is more underlying than what your kid wants to share with you, which side note is a lot of the time, and it's not to scare parents, but as we think back to growing up, we don't want to tell our parents everything. And we do internalize things because maybe we're embarrassed or we don't want our parents to know everything that's going on in our friend group and or our personal, quote unquote, private lives. And so I think therapy can be a beautiful place, if nothing else, just to do a check-in to see do we need more for the purposes of is there a mental illness present that we could do something about to relieve distressful symptoms or do something further about? Or just to build rapport with somebody so when there potentially is a life crisis or, again, a death or a traumatic event, we have a safe space already established that we can easily reach out to that we know we're comfortable with that person. So I like the idea of having something established. If absolutely nothing else, I always encourage people just to know what's available, right? Have the information, the education. So when you do need something, you don't have to be searching and knowing potentially that there's a year to two year wait list. You know what your options are. You know who you can get into quickly. And there's a lot of logistics behind that too. But that's always my advice. And so when you first went to therapy, you were kind of there begrudgingly a little bit until it turned out very well for you. So what is it like, uh, you know, focusing on that age range where some of your clients might be coming in, in that more negative, I don't want to be here space? Yes, yes. And I can tell you, like, I was that, I was that client, right? When we think in like the therapy world and the field, there are a lot of people when I say I work with teens and that's who I love working with. A lot of people are like, oh goodness, I don't know how you do it, right? Because we think stereotypical. We think like sassy teen or like very stubborn. 
And you know what? Let's be honest. We're all like that. Sometimes we may just come across differently or say things differently than a teen does, but we're all like that sometimes. Um, it is just my love area. I absolutely love working with teens. I, <laughs> I often have teens who come in who were in a similar emotional, psychological situation as I was as a teen going into that. Meaning they may come in and their parent might sit down with them and they don't want to look at me. They don't want to say a word to me. If I directly ask them a question, they just won't answer. And it's always interesting because I think the parents take so much shame in that when their kid won't speak up, like they're doing something wrong. And I don't view it that way at, at all, not whatsoever. So I always say like, give me those, what you call quote unquote tough teens. Like those are the people that I want because I know there's so much deep down that they oftentimes just need a neutral, safe space to be able to open up, to know that what they're sharing is heard and someone wants to help them. And I'm not going to run back and tell their parent everything they just told me. They just need a space. So I've also had parents call me to say, I think this is exactly how my kid's going to show up if I bring them in. Do you still want to see them? And my answer is always, yep, bring them in. I can tell you, and it's not a, it's not a pat on the back. It's just usually how it goes is that if I can get your kiddo in here and I can get you out of the room, I can usually get them to talk. And sometimes it does take two or three sessions. I'm okay with sitting in silence if we need to, because it usually does lead somewhere, which is kind of a beautiful evolution. Yes. Now, are you only able to practice in your state or are you able to like take on additional clients elsewhere? So with my licensure, we are licensed by state currently. And so I can only practice within the state of Wisconsin. So my physical practice, I have people come from however long they're willing to drive from. But within those limitations, I certainly do telehealth or virtual visits. Um, and I can do this to anyone who resides in the state of Wisconsin. And now you also mentioned, of course, being a mom. So can you talk a little bit about those sort of life changes that you've gone through and what it has been like having a little child? Not a lot of people know this. My close family and friends do, but not a lot of people know this, that I found out that I was pregnant two weeks before opening my practice. And that was quite the whirlwind of things. Um, We had been trying for a while and I just found out right before I opened. And I was somebody who then found out very quickly after I had become pregnant and dealt with a lot of sickness during my pregnancy. And so my very first day of business, Went okay. I was sick in the morning. It went okay though. And my second day of clients, I had to cancel my entire afternoon because I could not stop puking that day. And I think that's just a really good encompassing point to say like, 
this is how things go sometimes, right? As much as we want things to go smoothly or think we can predict what's going to happen, not a chance. Uh, that's not how I would have liked my second day open in my practice to go, but that's exactly how it went. So it's been a roller coaster. I'm sure it will continue to be a roller coaster. But I think that's where I really have just honed into setting less expectations within this balance of motherhood and being a wife and being a business owner and just gone with a flow. I can tell you that I change my availability within the hours that I practice probably at least two to three times a year, if not more. And that's often because once I figure out what's working or not working, I'm going to change things so it makes sense. I know burning myself out and working nights and weekends and all day long and trying to fit things in does not work. It doesn't make me a good mom. It doesn't make me a good wife. It makes me really, it makes me really tired, first of all, but it also makes me feel resentful in some of my other roles outside of my career. And I don't want to be that person. I don't like that version of me. So I've learned to just go with the flow. I don't even want to say balance because I don't think that that word is realistic oftentimes. I think it's just changing things up when I need to change things up, being okay that things are not going to stay the same, and just embracing whatever that means. And you mentioned earlier in general about how right now in time and space, uh, it is hard to raise a child and everything that children are going through. So what are you trying to do to make life, you know, sort of the best it can be for your son? In that regard, with his age, so my kid was actually turning four this week. So he's still young. Um, I think with him, what I am, this is the hard, the hard part, Sarah, with like, the roles that I play, because I think I find myself being so clinical sometimes <laughs> in having so much background and education in this world of child development and psychology that I can't even help sometimes, but just overthink some of the behaviors and patterns that I see. And I take all that, of course, with a grain of salt, because let's be real development is development and it looks different with everyone. But what I really, really try hard to do is teach my kid age appropriate, just social emotional skills. That's super, super, super important to me. I think having that as a foundation as a younger child just sets children up for so much more understanding of self, ability to communicate, um, resolution skills. I think it just really sets this beautiful foundation for growth and understanding and awareness. And I'm constantly then trying to utilize and practice that with my kiddo. I tell people, and I think some people think I'm actually kidding, and I promise you I'm not when I say this to you. I taught my kid age appropriately again, how to deep breathe when he was one. One. Because what little kids do, they have tantrums, right? Or maybe when he was having a hard time going to bed, it's how do we calm our bodies? 
And I've had so many parents say to me, like, one, like, that's way too young. How does he grasp anything? And I promise you, he could do it. He could do it. So I hate when people feel like they have to limit what they teach their young kiddos. Because I promise you, these kids are so capable and they're so resilient. But we have to give them a chance to learn and practice, too. So, again, when I say age appropriate, maybe it was like literally one deep breath, right? It wasn't this like ongoing two minutes of deep breathing. It was very age appropriate. But the more I can teach those foundational skills, the more I can be as present as possible as a mom and show up for him. And this is where it comes to the managing the roles. I try so hard to not be checking my emails and doing the things when I'm at home with him. If I feel like I have to do something, I try really hard to go in the other room or step outside or make a point to say, hey, I need to work for 10 minutes. I'm going to have you play and I'm going to come back. So he knows I'm trying really hard to be present with him. And so it's a lot of work, not only just trying to teach him skills and having him practice into what empowers him, but it's a lot of reflection back on myself and just growing as a parent constantly. And now does your spouse have any sort of background in child development or is it more of a like, I'm just going to listen to what Kara says because (laughs) she has the background. My husband does not have the same background as I do at all. My husband's actually an electrician. Um, And we grew up with two very different parenting styles from our parents. And we're very aware of that. Um, I think the beauty in the relationship that my husband and I have is we both really knew that we wanted to take a gentle parenting approach. We did not want to think of parenting as, you know, this place of you're naughty, here's your punishment. We we were not there at all. And we were very much on the same page about that. Um, I think even as somebody with with I'm gonna say compared to the average person, a lot more education and understanding of development, parenting, the brain, all that kind of stuff. Even with that. That doesn't mean that my job is easier, I will say. I honestly think sometimes in this field, it's harder for us, again, because maybe we are overanalyzing (laughs) a little bit of patterns and behaviors that truly are just normal development that we read into a little bit. Um, But my husband and I, I think, work really well in conjunction with each other on knowing that core place of how we want to raise our child. And again, it's practice, it's learning, we make mistakes, but we put in a lot of effort. And I think that's what's most important. We're trying really hard. And again, we fail and we succeed and we keep it moving. And can you share a little bit about what gentle parenting means to you? So gentle parenting, this is going to sound and look different to a lot of people. Um, I think there's a a lot of different viewpoints, even within what gentle parenting is. But again, I think for me, it's really a lot about empowering your child, 
focusing on them to set them up for successes, a lot of focus on empathy and validation and skill building and independence versus this concept at all of thinking you're a good kid, you're a naughty kid, you're a bad, we don't, that's not what we do um, in our personal journey. That's, that's not the approach we take. Now, that's not to say we don't do consequences because as adults in the real world, when we make certain choices, there are consequences to some of our choices, depending on what choice we make. So we very much try to keep things realistic, age appropriate, but focused on how do things empower him? What makes sense? What's realistic? And then letting him fail too. And not having repercussions around that when we're just learning. And so are you prepared for him to be going to kindergarten in a little while? It's, you know, again, this is one of those like ups and downs of like, emotionally, what can mom take right now? <laughs> um, I'm so excited for him to do more and more things. He, my, my child was never in daycare. He actually just started this, well, this current school year. So last fall, he started um, more of a social program that's not daycare and it's not school. I would call it more of like a 3K type program where um, we chose a Montessori style school where he gets to interact with 12, um, 11 peers and do that. And so it's been a really lovely journey for him to get some more transition time with peers and what that looks like and teachers and and then he will soon transition into more of what that kindergarten environment looks like. So I'm really excited for him. I will be like most parents and I'm sure be sobbing my eyes out the first day or for sure the first week of school. And and I will take care of me, but I will embrace all the things for him too, because I'm really excited to love that. Yes. Now, I believe you're also doing something outside of all of this with a school and child emotional development and stuff like that. Can you kind of explain what that is? Yes. Yes. So I am part of an awesome group of people from our community with lots of different backgrounds who have been focused on starting this charter school um, called Veritas Classical Academy which we are hoping, fingers crossed, that we can start in the fall of 2024. We don't have physical location details figured out, but we have basically all the background of what we want things to look like for the students who go there. So it will be focused heavily on character development and, again, these foundational skills when it comes to um, interaction and communication and emotions and emotional intelligence. And it really, again, clearly so many parts of what mental health and proactive mental health care should be. So I'm just so excited to see what that will evolve into and look like. And again, have just these things that are part of everyone's life. A mental health just doesn't go away, just like our physical health doesn't just go away. It's with all of us. And so I think the more we can be comfortable speaking about that, learn that at a young age, and then build upon that as we get older, 
I think the outcome from having that as part of a daily conversation in school and with peers and with adults and faculty and teachers, I think that that could just be absolutely incredible. So I'm very much looking forward to what this will turn into with all of these other community members. And hopefully, again, that will be coming very soon. And how did this charter school first come to be? Oh, goodness. Let's see. I don't know. I don't want to give you the long version. I'll give you the short version of what that is. So I was contacted by a woman in the community who had kind of found me through a different person who I knew, um, who recommended me as a therapist contact. And so she had um, been talking to other community members who were just feeling, I think, frustrated with some of the aspects of public school. Um, there's also a connection in there of a daughter of one of these members who taught actually and teaches still at a Veritas school who just could not speak highly enough of the curriculum and the student development there and what the school is really based upon. And so things just progressed from there. There was backing and there was people who really wanted to push forward. We had Again, people in all different roles, so financial donors, people with an education background, people in mental health, parents of young children, and we really rallied together and spent a lot of time researching and planning and doing things like grants and getting to the point that we're at right now. And do you, is there like, you mentioned there not being a physical space right now. Like, are you close to finding a physical space? Do you think that it is truly going to come to fruition? You know what? I do. We actually were hoping to start this fall. And our only major hangup, which is a big hangup, was the physical location, the where, where to actually make this happen. And so there has been lots of conversations about different options, whether that be, you know, starting brand new from the very beginning, whether that be remodeling an existing structure to fit what we need in the short term. But again, with an extra year now in hopefully opening in 2024, I think things really will fall into place. But I'm just not sure exactly what that is quite yet. Right. Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners today? I think in wrapping up, I just want to stress, even though I already stressed it, just the importance of what proactive mental health can look like. And that does not mean that you have to go to this place of clinical therapy if that doesn't speak to you or if you feel like you just don't need that. But there are so many ways just to be proactive in making sure that you're taking care of you. So the big things that I can't stress enough as just a very foundational baseline is always remembering that nothing within our bodies is disconnected. I think a lot of times people want to just place mental health over here and place physical health over here. And I don't know anybody whose head isn't connected to their bodies. So with that being said, everything is connected. So if we can do things like be mindful and engage in things like exercise of any sort, right? Make that just a habit. 
Um, think about things that truly fuel your body and your brain when you put them into your gut, because again, everything's connected. Surrounding yourself with people who really benefit you and your core values and what's important to you and having you around people, vice versa. To have and think about boundaries and what's healthy for you and communicate, right? Just these basic type things. I think they're very much overlooked. And because we're creatures of habit, once we get into routines, it is really hard for some of us to change those things or just to take a step back and reassess and reevaluate and make a change for ourselves. So I would just encourage everyone to really take a minute to look at what those things look like in your life and be willing to be a little vulnerable and make some changes if you need to. And then as a step further, if needed or wanted, yeah, do some proactive stuff with someone clinical if you need to, just to have a place of rapport and structure and or to have somebody that you trust if something comes up that you really need help with in the future. Yes, I think, you know, those can be difficult steps, but it's important for people to hear and realize that those options do exist. Absolutely. Now, at the end of all my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question that doesn't have to do with what we've talked about. So my question today for you is, when was the last time you experienced nostalgia? What a wonderful question. I love that question. I can tell you one of my absolute favorite things from my childhood was literally just being outside, like sunshine, carefree, playing. And that's something that I so love being able to tap into as a mom. So I recently went on a little vacation with my family. My son came along. And I think just the moments of being out in nature, especially with him and seeing things through this really beautiful place of innocence and embracing what that is just takes me back to those times that really were special and impactful to me. So I'm going to say not too long ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago in that place of just nature and sunshine and, and being with this little spirit of a human that I have. All right, that brings this episode to a close. So if you'd like to check out Kara's business, her website will be in the description and there will be another website also for her, which is her non-clinical business. She has a podcast that is there as well. So feel free to check out both of those links to see more of the great work that Kara is doing. And of course, if you would like to check out our podcast and find more information and resources from past episodes, that link is in the description as well. It also brings you to our, all of our social media. So if you want to go follow those pages, we are on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. So feel free to check all of that out. And if you would like to support the podcast monetarily, a link to do that is in the description. That support is always appreciated. And if you would like to be a guest on the show, you can feel free to send me an email. So thank you so much, Kara, for spending time with me today. And to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Thanks so much, Sarah. What a wonderful conversation.